pray together. Thank you, Lord, now for the privilege of being able to continue our worship and the study of your word. And we thank you for your word. We think about the little place that we have in this history of, of your people and the history of the body of Christ and, and how many uh, huts and villages and rooms heated and unheated and skyscrapers and all kinds of places that your people have gathered together to open your word together and a desire to learn more about you and honor you with our obedience and Lord it's in that same heart and vein and sense of history that we turn to you tonight and and ask Lord that as you have done for thousands of years you would do tonight and meet with us and commune with us by your spirit through your word we want to tell you that we believe uh, of our hearts, though we know they're deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But we feel like we come here, Lord, eager to obey anything that you would speak to us from your word tonight. That's our heart toward you as your servants. And so speak to us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Genesis chapter 13. I think that uh, Genesis chapter 13 and these early verses, we have um, one of the most important lessons contained in these first four uh, verses uh, uh, that uh, it can be for the child of God and, and, and for the Christian who desires uh, to please God. Because in these four verses that begin this chapter, we uh, have demonstrated in Abraham how to handle failure. And uh, he has failed miserably in going down into Egypt under self-will uh, to escape a famine in Canaan, the land that God had called him to and had given him no direction to go down uh, into uh, the land of Egypt. And the whole thing is pure misery, as we'll see in, in, in just a moment. But what do you do when you just... Uh, Spoil, spoil the thing, you know, you ju everybody knows you, you bombed there in that situation. Everybody knows you missed the mark by a million miles. And how in the world do you handle uh, failure in the Christian life? And uh, I don't think that any Christian uh, is going to walk with the Lord for any length of time. Uh, and certainly no one is going to serve the Lord for any length of time without us uh, failing at times. And, and Abraham shows us how to handle that uh, failure even when we really mess up in the way that, that he did. Then Abraham, verse 1, went up from Egypt. So Egypt has been a catastrophe for him. And uh, so he heads north out of Egypt uh, toward Canaan, which he, he ought never to have left. That is Israel. And he is uh, accompanied by his wife and all that he had. And Lot was with him uh, to the south. And so they go to the south of the land of Canaan. Abram was very rich in uh, livestock, in silver, and in gold. And so he is, uh, he is a rich man, uh, but he loves God. And his life, even following his failure, is going to be characterized by um, uh, the tent, walking as a pilgrim, and also the altar. Uh, he is a lover and a worshiper 
of God. I think we have to be careful uh, not to get a chip on our shoulder related to those who are rich in the body of Christ. Of course, we reject the teaching that uh, if anyone has enough faith, uh, they will always uh, be rich, that faith will always be manifested in great wealth in a Christian's life. That is not necessarily uh, so. But we shouldn't view wealth in a Christian's life as something carnal. Uh, His wealth never moves him. Uh, He has other problems, but his wealth doesn't move him from a love for God and an understanding that he is a pilgrim in in the world. And uh, I think that uh, wealth is a a tremendous uh, blessing from the Lord if it's in the Lord. It's a curse if it isn't, and, uh, but it is a tremendous responsibility. It's a great stewardship that God entrusts to people and uh, all of us for whatever God gives us. It's, we are stewards over that. One day we will give an answer uh, for it. And, and so there are very specific tem- temptations associated with, with being wealthy. There is the importance of laying up for ourselves uh, treasure in heaven, as Jesus said, and, and not on the earth. But a person is not a carnal Christian by virtue of being wealthy. I have found uh, in the body of Christ that though there are people in the body of Christ who have the gift of giving and God channels amazing amounts of resources uh, through their life and they will quietly uh, impact the kingdom of God in ways that nobody knows and they understand wealth, they understand it as a stewardship and they understand how to expand the kingdom of God through it. Abraham was a wealthy man, and, uh, but he kept his head screwed on straight and his spirit right before the Lord for all of his other failings. And, uh, and I think there needs to be that, that understanding uh, about that. Sometimes we get it you know, reversed around and, and we can uh, think ourselves more spiritual uh, for not having uh, anything. And, uh, and that can uh, be God's will in, in his call upon our lives. But this can be God's will for the child of God too. And then he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel. And then here it is, right here in verse 3. To the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abraham uh, had made a very, very bad decision uh, to leave God's plan for his life uh, in Canaan, to go down into Egypt in order to uh, escape the famine that was there in Canaan. He takes charge of his life. There's no prayer involved in any of this. He's just going to do what seems to him to be the obvious thing uh, to do. While he's in Egypt, he lies about his wife being his wife and gives the impression that, uh, uh, and speaks plainly, this is my sister, uh, implying that she is not my wife at all, and technically she was his half-sister, as we'll see uh, later on in the book. But it was a lie, and it was a deception, and as a result of it, uh, Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's uh, uh, harem there and in doing what Abram did here he not only puts his wife in danger but he jeopardizes God's plan of salvation for the whole world 
He puts what you and I enjoy as a Christian here tonight, he puts that in jeopardy with his, his little plan that he, he does down there. God's plan to bring the Savior of the world into the world uh, as a descendant of uh, Abram and, and Sarai. So, I mean, the, the, the consequences are, are, are beyond, you know, trying to encapsulate in, in, in words. And the only thing that kept this thing from becoming the indescribable uh, disaster on a physical level, on, on a spiritual level, is that God stepped in and he just supernaturally uh, protected Sarai. Now, you can be sure... Uh, any woman who reads this account uh, uh, understands this. But you can be sure that a great deal of damage uh, was done in this decision that Abram had made. And as I mentioned last time, it probably was a very quiet camel ride uh, home <laughs> back uh, to Canaan. But a lot of damage has been done. Uh, Abram has been rebuked and rightfully rebuked by a pagan. I don't care if he is Pharaoh. He's a pagan, and he rightfully rebuked Abram for his lying and, and his deception. He has failed miserably in uh, his relationship and responsibility with his wife. He has sinned in front of his wife, and I have no doubt that he has done considerably dam considerable damage to this, uh, this marriage of his. He certainly has uh, shaken uh, Sarah's uh, faith in him and her ability to, to trust him, ability to uh, even respect him in, in some respects. He has failed miserably in front of all of his servants, uh, all of the people that are associated with him, and they're probably wondering about his character, wondering about his ability to, you know, make good decisions, his, his judgment and all. And so what do you do when you've done just something that's just about as stupid as you can do? And I say it affectionately, not as one who is incapable of doing all of that and more. But the problem is, that's, that's water under the bridge. That's happened. Not Abram. I don't care if he's the father of faith. Not you. Not me. We can't fix, uh, change anything that is one second in our past. That die is cast. So now, what do we do when this is a part of our immediate history in order to try and salvage uh, the situation? And since we can't change our past, I mean, what, what do we do now? Have you ever been, ever been in this place? Don't shout out. I mean, it is a very, very miserable place to be. You just go, how could I have been so... That, how did I get so far out and left field to be doing this? I know better than this. I'm smarter than this. I've walked with God long enough to know better than to do this. And yet He did it. And, and sometimes we're in the same place. And what do we need to do? We need to do exactly what Abram does and we are told in the passage there in verse 3 is that Abram went back to Bethel what is Bethel it is the last place he heard from God it is the last place that he knew he was in God's will for his life 
And when a person hits that deal where they, this thing is turned into a complete disaster and you realize, I've done tremendous damage uh, in, in this series of decisions and all, what in the world can I do? What's my first step? And, and here he is, he's taken self-will and he's gone to Egypt, he's taken his life under his own control, gone out wherever into the world, what do I do? Go back to the, wherever you were in life the last time you know you were in the will of God. The last place you heard his voice and knew that you were right with him. That is to go back to Bethel. And that little phrase, back to Bethel, if we leave tonight, and that little phrase has been etched in our memory and in our heart for our own use and our own lives and the lives of other people, this will have been a tremendous night. Back to Bethel. Go back to Bethel in a situation like this. And sometimes, you know, in your own heart, in your own pilgrimage, you can end up in a place that doesn't have to be as big as this, and God can remind us by His Holy Spirit, go back to Bethel. Go back to living the kind of life that you were living when you were hearing me, walking with me, when you know that you were right with me. You know what the New Testament equivalent is of it? When Jesus uh, wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus and he said, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Have a change of mind about where you are in life and do the first works. Go back to where you know that you were right with me. What characterized your life? when uh, everything was right between uh, you and me, God would say. Uh, what place did the Word of God have in your life there? What place did Christian fellowship have? What place did this and this? What characterized your life before you got out and left field? Go back to that. Go back to Bethel. And it's good for us to not only know it related to our own lives, but sometimes as a help and encouragement to others that maybe you talk to and they're a Christian, child of God, and they got way out somewhere on something. And for you to be able to say, listen, you got to go back to Bethel. you got to go back to where you were in life before you took your life under your own control and ended up out there in Egypt and making a fool of yourself. I say that uh, as I would say it to myself. And it is, it's wonderful. It infuses hope into the situation because we can all go back to that place. Now he takes, and you notice in verse 4, and uh, he uh, uh, goes back to where he had uh, set up that altar there uh, in Bethel, where he had done it at the first, and then he called, Abram called on the name of the Lord. And here he is, he's making a fresh consecration of his life to the Lord. Lord, <laughs> you saw it. I don't have to inform you. What I've been doing the last few weeks. And, and I, what I was doing the last few weeks is because I wasn't committed to your will for my life. And now I just freshly it, commit my life to you, your purpose, your will for my life. Even if it means staying in Canaan during a famine. Even if it means hardship. Isn't it true? I remember years ago... Uh, hearing Greg Laurie give an illustration, I mean, probably 20 years ago, uh, on, on a tape. And, uh, and he had talked about 
how uh, he and Kathy had uh, moved from one house to another house. And it was, you know, nice and a step up and all that kind of thing and everything. And they moved everything into the house. And, uh, and he said, it wasn't right. It wasn't right. And, uh, and so it's just miserable. It was beautiful. It should have been right. It should have been everything. I'm not saying it was luxurious. I'm just saying it was, it was nice, but it wasn't where God wanted him to be. And so I'm sure he went and made the change. The greatest place to be in life is in the middle of God's will, whatever that is. And to get out of that will, even if it's into something, you know, that looks easier, more prosperous, down in Egypt and that kind of a thing... Peace, being right with God, that's the valuable thing in life. That's the priceless thing in life. And unless that's in place, nothing else matters. It's all miserable. And so he freshly commits his life to the Lord and uh, I have no doubt asks for a fresh start. And the Lord is eager to meet with us when we come to him that way. There is that a verse in 1 John, 1 John 1, 9, it's called the Christian bar of soap. You have to wash up with it pretty regularly. And it says, if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, when you make the kind of mistakes and, and sin here that, that Abram commits, I mean, you can feel so stupid and you can feel so ashamed and, and, and you can just plunge down into condemnation and get buried in it and never come up out of it. But the beautiful thing about Abram here is that he doesn't get buried in condemnation. He doesn't fail and then think, oh boy, I can't really build an altar or reapproach God for a really long time because he's pretty steamed at me. And, and, and that can be a tendency that, that we get in those kind of situations. He turns back to God immediately. And that's the thing to do. If you've been away for a while, you turn back to God immediately, learn what you're supposed to learn. Uh, from the season of failure. Nothing's a complete waste that we learn uh, something uh, from. And, and then uh, don't build up barriers so that you don't go back into those situations again, but draw back to God immediately, even following colossal failures in, in, in our lives. And, and it's very important that we don't isolate ourselves from God or from others at times like this. Just confess it. And, and repent and ask for forgiveness of him and then move forward in my relationship with the Lord. Draw close to him. That's what a work of the Holy Spirit will look like in our lives. Now the devil, he's, he's goofy. You can't, ever, you can't ever trust him. You can't believe him because uh, he's just a liar. That's all he, that's all he does is lie. And uh, he'll come along following a failure like this and he'll just say something like, You're, you don't plan on... Uh, praying to God anytime soon. Not after that. And don't think he's going to have you. You can just go out and do something like this for a few weeks and everything and then just approach his throne like that just one day after you've done something like that. You better keep out of circulation for a while and, and just watch Christian television. <laughs> oh my, look at the 
And, but don't, don't be getting around real life people and that kind of thing. The devil comes in and he condemns. And his condemnation, he condemns, always tries to push us away from God following our failure. Now the Holy Spirit operates a different way. He convicts. And the Holy Spirit can spank you. Anybody been spanked by the Holy Spirit? All right, so I'm not alone. Can he be firm or what? I mean, you could just melt right in his presence when he really wants to let you have it. But you know, there's always hope when the Holy Spirit's at work. And he will always push us back to God. He will always encourage us to return to God immediately. And that's, and that's important to understand in our Christian life, the difference between how the devil operates in our life following failure and how the Holy Spirit will operate. He will condemn you can always recognize him. He's going to force us, try to force us away from God, condemn us away from God. The Holy Spirit will come in, be very, very strong, but he will always draw us back uh, to, to God. And to Abram's credit, I'm, I mean, he just uh, goes back to the Lord, back to Bethel, freshly surrendering his life. Uh, to the Lord, back to the last place that he knew he was right with God. And so that back to Bethel. Got it? Everybody got it? Back to Bethel. All right. Then in verse 5. Lot also, uh, who went with Abram, he also had flocks and herds and tents. He's become very, very prosperous. And I have no doubt that his prosperity is very much linked to his relationship with Abram, with his uncle. So, so they're both, they've got a lot of flocks, they've got a lot of wealth and herds and tents and all of this. And the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So there's a strife now that develops within the family here between Abram and, and Lot. And uh, the strife occurs because there's overcrowding in the land. Uh, they, were, they were kind of, the land had been given to them by God, but the Canaanites were still in the land. The Perizzites were still in the land. They had the best of the land. And so here is Abram and Lot with these huge flocks trying to uh, sustain them on probably very, very arid uh, land there in the south of, of Israel. And so there's a shortage of supplies and, uh, and uh, resources for their herds, and, and it produces a strife between the herdsmen of both of them. Isn't it? it gets, and that, and that's, that's real, and that's pretty ugly, isn't it? Um, I remember a couple of times uh, when, as a boy, and uh, um, they, uh, they ran into a, a couple of different products, uh, uh, came, uh, there was a shortage of it, I'm trying to be tactful here, it was toilet paper, uh, and then also gasoline. But I remember when I was a boy, this whole thing went out through the whole land, you know, that there was some kind of a deal happened and stuff, and there was going to be a shortage of toilet paper and everything. And people raced to the stores. I mean, they bought every, like, forever, you know. <laughs> it would be needed a gasoline the same way back in 1973 and all. I mean, even when they get those little uh, cabbage patch deal and uh, the, you know, Xbox or whatever, when there's a shortage of something, it gets pretty ugly. 
between people. And, uh, and so this is getting uh, pretty ugly here, the strife within the family. Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Now, Abram is very, very uh, beautiful in this because for Abram, the relationship means everything to him. With Abram, peace and quiet within the family uh, means more to him than the size of the flock or material getting ahead with Lot and that kind of thing. So he's a real special uh, guy. Peace, and people for whom peace is the most important thing to them. Very, very, very beautiful uh, characteristic. And it characterizes uh, Abram. And so he said, uh, listen, I don't want to live a life of strife here uh, between us. We're brothers. There shouldn't be this going on. It's not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And so he offers Lot here, his nephew, uh, the first choice to take whatever he wants uh, in, uh, in, in the land. Now, this separation between Lot and uh, Abram is of the Lord. Abram should have never taken Lot uh, from his old hometown. God told Abram, you leave your family and, and everything and all, and you come to Canaan. He brought Lot with him. So God's got to separate Lot away because he hasn't promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and Lot. He has promised it to Abram. Lot is, is, bringing Lot has created a problem for God. So he's going to separate uh, them and the Lord is in this separation of of this this relationship. Now, Abram probably, perhaps he has an, uh, an understanding that this needs to happen. That God is is in this, and uh, God wants to do it. But there's no need for when God is going to separate two brethren from a relationship with one another that God knows he doesn't want them to have any longer, that it needs to turn into strife. And sometimes God will remove a relationship from our lives as brethren in the body of Christ, and sometimes he just does that. And I don't need to find something wrong with the other person to let that happen. God can do that. And it should be a peaceful thing when God does that. And that's what, that's what Abram is, is wanting here. And that's what Abram is getting. He's just a, a peace-loving man, just hates strife and, and, and all of that stuff. Take what it is that, that you want. I don't want to compete with, with you a uh, lot. I'll take second if, if, if for the sake of, of peace. Now, when... Uh, Abram offers Lot here. Uh, you take your choice here. You go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. Now remember, Abram has a bit of... Uh, he, he's, this tells me he's really learned his lesson about Egypt and about self-will. And it's a lesson that Lot hasn't learned yet. And so for him, he doesn't want to force this situation and I'm going to go in this way and do this. He's going to let God sort this, this whole thing uh, out. And so he just, tremendous humility, he tells the younger, tells his nephew, you go ahead and, and choose what it is that you want to do here. Now Lot is going to choose. 
And you notice what he does. He lifted up his eyes and he saw all of the plain of Jordan that it was well watered. Now well watered in a desert area means prosperity. It is a prosperous place. It has the resources uh, within that city and in that, in that area make a lot of money. So he looks at it and, and looks at the plain of Jordan. It's well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. And then Lot, notice, he saw in verse 10, then verse 11, Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. So I'll take the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from one another. So he saw, he chose, and they separated. Here's what Lot should have done. I mean, you're talking about a patriarchal society in those days. This is an unbelievable rudeness of Lot to take as the younger person and, t- and make that decision, he ought to have said immediately to Abram, you are the elder, you've been like a father to me, my father died, you've raised me, I owe all of my prosperity to you. In this culture, uh, the way to honor you is, is for you to make the decision. I won't make the decision, you make the decision. You tell me what you want, and then that's exactly what I'll do. Uncle, what do you think would be best? That would have been polite and respectful. The interesting thing is we'll never know what Abram would have said to him if he had posed that question because he never posed the question. I think it's important, especially in a youth-oriented culture like the United States of America is, and we pay a terrible price for it, by the way. I'm older now, so you say stuff like that. (laughs) But where where there's so often disrespect, uh, even toward those who are a little, little bit older and all. I think that as a younger person, don't be afraid to ask questions of godly older people. doesn't mean you have to do it. But, but to, he would have been so wise to ask his uncle, what do you think is the right thing to do, to do here? And, uh, and he doesn't do it. So he looks at the best of the land, and uh, he saw, so it's lust of the eyes, uh, that he once he saw it was well watered, it was a place to make a lot of money and all. He chose for himself, verse 11, absence of prayer. There's no prayer involved in this. It's interesting, when we read about Abram, we read about the tent and the altar, the tent and the altar, the tent and the altar. When we read about Lot, it's always the tent. There's never a mention of an altar associated uh, with his life. So there's no prayer. He doesn't care about God's will for his life at all. Where can I make the most money and continue to enlarge all of my wealth and all? And so he chose for himself selfishness there, plain of Jordan. He journeyed to the east, and they separated from each other. And then here it is. It's just wonderful. There's so many pictures of Abram uh, through the book of Genesis here where he is the picture of peace despite the decision that Lot has made. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Just as peaceful as can be. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men were told in verse 13 of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against uh, the Lord. So this is the beginning of a very, very terrible slide 
in uh, Lot's life. So he pitches his tent, verse 12, as far as Sodom. And then we're going to read in chapter 14, verse 12, that he's going to be living in Sodom. And then in 19, chap- chapter 19, verse 1, we read of him sitting in the, uh, the gates of the city of Sodom. He is in, has a role of leadership uh, there. I think that it's possible that Lot happens very, very often where he looks and says, well, I can join myself up to the city of of Sodom, never be affected by it. It won't affect me. It affects other people and all. I can live close to these things and and be all right. We think that we're the exception to the rule, exception to God's commandment to separate uh, from, from evil. But he draws closer to evil. So the decision-making that he's making makes a lot of sense if you want to make money, but, it, but he, is, he is moving away from good, he is moving away from God and godliness, and he is moving closer to evil. And that's, that's a bad re- recipe uh, in, in a human life. We're told in verse 13 that the problem with this decision that he's made to join himself to Sodom is that they were exceedingly wicked and sinful against uh, the Lord. The city looked good from the outside. Just look at it and say, wow, that's a prosperous place. One problem. It's on God's menu for destruction in, uh, in rather short uh, order and because of the greatness of the wickedness. And in chapter 19, we're given a, a little greater clarity uh, about their uh, wickedness. If he had just sought God in prayer, I'm convinced that God would have uh, warned him away from this place, steered him away uh, from Sodom, but Lot's not interested in God's will for his life. And he does something here that has been repeated over and over again um, in history, even among God's people. And uh, it's important we learn the lesson from it. Lot takes here and he puts his family in an evil environment without God's direction in doing so. And he does it for the sake of money, gain, materialism, and uh, that's his reason. He takes his family, he moves them out of a godly environment and influence, And he moves them under the influence of Sodom solely for the sake of money and uh, materialism for prosperity. Now God can take a family and he can move them into Sodom in his will. And he can take care of them there. But he will never send a lot into Sodom with his family because Lot doesn't have the character or the history with God to withstand it. And Lot, as a result of this decision that he makes, he makes it in order to make more money and all of this kind of thing. And at the end of it, he's going to lose everything. He's going to lose his wife. He's going to lose his marriage. He's going to lose his children in a a way. He's going to lose his wealth and his reputation. And he is going to end up living in a cave. And, and, and Peter, the Apostle Peter, in one of the most gracious assessments of a human being in all of the Bible, declares Lot to be a righteous man. I have no doubt that he was, in, in a sense, through the eyes of the New Testament. So maybe Lot could go into Sodom, and he had enough going on, though it doesn't look so great, but he had enough going on between him and God that he wouldn't be affected by its wickedness. He could survive its wickedness. 
But his wife didn't have that. And his children didn't have that. And Sodom is going to destroy their lives. Husbands. Fathers. We need to give the spirituality of our family the highest priority in our decision making. Not money. And this is repeated all of the time. Where a man is offered a promotion, it means moving to another city, it moves, means moving from a, an environment that, that it, it, they're nurtured, the family's being nurtured spiritually and growing spiritually and all, and there's no prayer. I mean, it's a way to move up in the business and, and, and all, and, and we'll make more money, more money than we've ever dreamed of and all of these things. And, and the person doesn't even go to the new city to see if there's one Bible teaching church. Just says yes to it immediately. And then takes the family without any direction from the Lord into an environment that can destroy uh, them, them all. And we must not do that. It is the way of Lot. There are many, many things in life that are more important than money. Our marriage is more important than money. Our children are more important than money. A godly family is more important than money. And children that are innocent in their childhood is worth more than money. And he doesn't value any of those things. And he throws them away just to get a little more prosperous. And the Lord said to Abram, verse 14, after Lot had separated from him, that needed to happen. And God comes to him and says, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Look northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants uh, forever. So he's standing there and he looks in all directions, including the plain of Jordan, where Lot has, has uh, uh, taken and, and, and he has uh, gone and chosen. And uh, God says, in, in, in essence, listen, I don't care what Lot chose. This land is for you. And, uh, and I think it's important for us to realize, I don't care what a Lot does. Uh, related to our lives. I don't care if it looks like he's ripped us off, he's, you know, beat us to the punch on things, he's gotten ahead and, and all of these things. No lot will ever, ever undo or hinder the plan of God for our lives. God just will not let it happen. And, and he's not going to let it happen here as it relates uh, to, to Abram. And God says, look all the way through the land of, of Canaan, and all this land I give to you, I give it to your descendants. And so that land is, is given uh, to the Jews. This promise is pre-Palestinian, by the way. Of course, the UN would read uh, chapter 13 of, of the book of, of Genesis. Why this land? Why that little strip? You know, Israel is, is, is smaller than the state of New Jersey. You can drive through New Jersey in about a day. It doesn't take any kind of time to run. Some of you could drive through in half a day. Why that? Why not Peru? 
Why not Brazil? Why not Switzerland? Why that little place? Why would he give them that little strip of land? Why would he say, I want to set up a people that are my people. I want to plant them right there in the land of Canaan. I want to have a people who know the true and the living God, obey the true and the living God. They live and serve the true and living God. Why would he put them in that place? Because it connects three continents. That little piece of land, that little piece of real estate connected the three great continents of the world in that day. Sometimes you go to Israel today, and if you go in to one of the shops and you start to engage in a con- they know you're a Christian. You know, if you go over there and, I mean, you're on a tour, you know, so almost everybody's a Christian that's on a tour and, and everything. But if you get into a, a spiritual discussion maybe with one of the shop owners, uh, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, as Jews, we don't have a great commission. Jesus gave you a great commission that you were to go into all of the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. They don't know the verse, but I'm quoting it for you, you know, and, and, and all. And, uh, and, and so they know we've been a given a great commission to go into all the world. They say, we haven't been given a great commission. God didn't need to give them a great commission. He put them in a place in the world where they didn't have to go out to the world. The whole world passed through Israel. It's on the path that all trade to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. It all had to go through Israel to avoid the deserts. God brought the world to Israel. I mean, it's a very strategic uh, piece of, of, uh, of, of real estate. And uh, so he gives them that land uh, because he wanted it to be an influence for him in the world. Verse 16, and I will make your descendants. He's promised them the land and spoken of his descendants. And now he speaks of of his uh, descendants more specifically. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Remember, he doesn't have a child at this point. (laughs) He's about 86 years old, 85 years old. A little late to start on things. It's going to take a miracle. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Wow. You live in the valley. You understand dust. And so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could be numbered. You're not only going to have children, but your descendants are going to be innumerable. And he says, Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And to walk uh, here, it expresses dominion. And so what God is saying to uh, Abram here is, Walk through it, and everywhere you walk, it's yours. And then Abraham, Abram moved his tent. Again, the mention of the tent. He's a pilgrim. And he went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and he built an altar there to the Lord. Beautiful picture of his life. And it came to pass in the days of uh, um, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, uh, uh, man, uh, Chedorlaomer, 
that's pretty good, huh? King of Elam and uh, Tidal, king of uh, nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, uh, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinab, king of Adma, uh, Shemabur, king of uh, uh, Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined uh, together at the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. And uh, so you've got these uh, five kings have uh, come together, verse f- uh, four kings in verse uh, one, and they have come now to attack uh, five kings in, in Israel. The four kings come from the east uh, out on the other side of the desert. They joined together there in the valley of, of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, and it's believed that the valley of Siddim is located under the Salt Sea, uh, the, the uh, Dead Sea today. And for 12 years, these five kings had served Chedorlaomer, uh, and then they had been evidently conquered by him. They were paying tax or tribute to him. On the 13th year, they said, we've had enough of this. We're going to rebel against him in that. Then in the 14th year, uh, Chedorlaomer, he uh, takes him a year to get his armies together, but he's really upset about the loss of his taxes and all. So he gathers his kings that are aligned with him, and uh, they're going to come and put these rebellious uh, little kingdoms in, in place. And the kings that were with him came and attacked uh, the uh, Rephaim in uh, Ham and Emim in Shava uh, Kiriath Aim and the Horites and their mountain of Seir as far as uh, El Paran which is in the wilderness and then they turned back and came to En Mishfat that is Kadesh and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in uh, Hazar uh, Hazar Zon Tamar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of uh, Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim. And against uh, uh, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, uh, Aram, uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. So these are the, 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 the greatness of, of the battle. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt uh, pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled as, as the battle uh, begins. Uh, these four kings come from the east. They attack these five kings. Among them are the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They defeat the five kings. And uh, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they fled. And then some fell in, there in battle. The remainder fled into the mountains there uh, in that desert region of, of, uh, out there in the wilderness area of southern Israel. And then they took uh, these... Fu- Uh, four kings took all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and they went their way. So they looted them. You're not going to pay us taxes? Think you can just rebel like that? Well, we're going to come in and strip away all your goods. And that's exactly what they did. Now, why... Would this battle, a battle like this has been repeated a thousand times in human history, why would it be of any interest to us? And we're told why it's of some interest to us, because it involves Abram there in verse 12. And they also took Lot, 
Abram's brother's son, his nephew, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So they have taken him uh, kind of hostage in, in all of this. He's, he's one of those uh, that, uh, of, of the population. They've taken not only the property, but they've also taken the people as slaves. And then one who had escaped uh, from the battle, they, he came and he told Abram the Hebrew. That's the first use of the word Hebrew in, in the Bible and uh, associated, related to uh, Abram. And, uh, and so generally scholars feel that the name is derived from Eber, the great-grandson of Shem, as we read about in, in chapter 10. So Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the uh, Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Anur, and they were allies with Abram. So Abram's, uh, you know, settling in the land. He settled down. He's at peace. He's developing friendly relations with some of the people uh, of the land there, some alliances, uh, very dangerous, uh, the ancient world without alliances. And now when Abram heard that his brother, uh, blood relation, was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained soldiers who were born into his house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. So his response to this taking of, of his nephew was to arm his uh, militia and then to chase those men down that had captured uh, Lot. And we're told that this uh, militia or this uh, trained servants who were born into his house, so servants giving birth to children, they are now servants of of uh, Abram, they totaled 318. Remember, when you think of Abram at this time, don't think of, you know, him and uh, Sarai and about six people traveling together. You're talking about 318 men who are young enough and strong enough to be trained servants. You're talking about then other men who are older and younger than them. You're talking about wives. You're talking about children. You're talking about a group of people that probably numbers a hundred. Uh, thousand plus uh, traveling now and, and as a part of, of Abram's uh, of, of his, his household and, and so he takes this militia and he follows them in a pursuit as far as Dan we're told there now some of you have been on a trip uh, to Israel uh, when we've uh, gone probably on the second or third day that we're there we go to the city of Dan and uh, this uh, battle when they go up and they're going to defeat these four kings and their whole military and they presume as far as the city of Dan this ancient city of Dan here we're talking about over 1900 years BC this event the gate of that city has been uncovered and so on a trip to Israel it's as of all the sites that we go to it's as far back as we go in the Bible so people turn to Genesis chapter 14 we tell them to do that and all we were there Genesis this is chapter 14. Wow. And so that's as old as you, as you get. Except uh, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, so the dirt and everything, all that's uh, really old too. So that goes all the way back and all. But in terms of seeing something you know, historical like, uh, like that, isn't it interesting that here is Lot, 
And he makes this, just this dumb decisions on the basis of his flesh and on the basis of carnality and all of these, these kinds of things. No concern for God, no concern for God's will, no concern for, for prayer or any of these things. And he ends up in bondage. And then now the righteous Abram has to come and bail him out of you know, the, the mess that he's put himself in, in the middle of. And Abram could have just said, that's it, I mean, he needs to just sit in that for a while and I don't care what happens to him, good riddance, that's the dumbest decision I've, oops, well, I made a bad, okay, well, everything. So he come, mounts up and he's going to come in and, and uh, rescue uh, him. Now, this is interesting. He's got 318 trained servants uh, in his house. Here's a man who loves the Lord, he worships the Lord, he's a man of faith uh, in the Lord, and yet he maintained an armed militia as a part of, of his household. He had trained his servants to be able to fight, they were skilled in battle, able to protect his family and his property in, in this crazy fallen world. And there's no contradiction and being a person who is a person of faith in God and, and yet uh, they, they provide for the protection and, and defense of their loved ones, of their family. No contradiction of that uh, as it relates to the Bible. He had a militia ready to protect life and property and all of those things for God to use however God chose to use and God said, I'll use it. In this instance, I'll, I'll uh, use it. And sometimes self-defense is, is needed in this uh, uh, very, very fallen world. Remember Jesus the, um, spoke to the disciples. He had sent them out and they just with some clothing and one money bag and all of this kind of thing. And, and he said, don't take a whole bunch with you. And then, uh, pr then prior to his going, uh, ascending up into heaven, he told them, you know, go ahead and take a sword now. And I think it was Peter that spoke up and said, here's two of them, you know. And uh, oh, the Lord's got, all right, these guys. Uh, I, so he said, it's enough. He ends the conversation. But there's nothing wrong with self-defense for a child of God. I don't understand this whole pacifist movement on, on the thing of, of, of feeling like you can't do that in the light of the Scriptures. But there are people that believe that, but I don't, I don't think it has a biblical uh, basis at all. So he divided his forces, verse 15, against them by night. And uh, he and his servants attacked them, pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So they attack them there in Dan. They chase them another hundred miles to, uh, to the city of Hobah, which is uh, near uh, Damascus in Syria, and defeats them. And so he brought back all of the goods and brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women uh, and the people. So he, he is victorious over them. Uh, they, he attacks by night, so he takes them by surprise. Here you are, your four kings with your military. You've just defeated the five most powerful kings in the land. Who's going to take you on? So they're self-confident. It's night. They're probably partying and, and the whole thing related to that. And, and uh, uh, Abram comes in, takes him by surprise. But the real reason for the victory is given in verse 20 when we get to it. And that is, it was the Lord. The Lord was in it for him to defeat them. And so he brings back all of the goods, all the people, all of these things. Brings them back to the area of, of Sodom. And you know what's really crazy about the whole thing? Lot goes back into Sodom. 
I mean, God has just fired a shot across his bow to get his attention that you are selling out your whole family for what can be stolen in a night. What in the world are you thinking? God's trying to get through to him. And, and yet all of it gets rescued. He gets, you know, pulled out of the, the fire and he goes right back into it. He goes right back in to, to Sodom. Oh, man, terrible decision. Now, following this victory, the king of Sodom, uh, this, uh, following this victory, uh, two kings are going to come out and greet uh, Abram because of this, this victory. One's a good king, one is an evil king. Uh, one Abram is willing to have something to do with, and the other, the evil one, Abram doesn't want anything to do with him. Doesn't want even a shoelace from this guy. So the king of Sodom, the evil uh, king, he's a king over a city that's about to be destroyed because of its wickedness. He went out to meet Abram at the valley of uh, Sheva, and that is the king's valley after his return from the defeat of uh, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek comes out. And uh, he is a king, notice. Uh, his name means the king of righteousness. But notice he is the king of Salem. The word Salem means peace. He is the king of peace. The city of Salem will ultimately become known as Jerusalem. So he is the king of peace. He is the king of righteousness. All of this is pictures of, of Jesus Christ, as the writer of the book of Hebrews brings out. Uh, in, in that particular epistle. But Melchizedek comes out. He is the king of Salem. He brought out bread and wine, symbols of, of communion. He was a priest of God Most High. So he knows the Lord, the true and the living God. And he unites the two great offices. He is both a king and a priest. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews will bring out related to Jesus, he, he united those two offices of king and priest because he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And he said to Abraham, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high here's the reason for your victory who has delivered your enemies into your hand and then Abram following this blessing uh, he gave uh, a tithe uh, to um, uh, to uh, Melchizedek of of all now I don't want to, I'm not going to get in, in, in even remotely into what the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, brings out. And uh, uh, I refer you to the tapes there related to Melchizedek being a type of, of Jesus Christ. It's very, very fascinating. It's worthwhile, but there isn't the time uh, uh, for it. So Melchizedek is a type of, of Jesus Christ. Many people believe that he is a Christophany. He is, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in, in, in the the old uh, in the Old uh, Testament but what is significant here is two things and Paul uh, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews brings it out related to the relationship between Abram Abraham and Melchizedek he, he makes note of the fact that Melchizedek blesses Abram and in that culture the greater would always bless uh, the lesser 
So understanding this, uh, Melchizedek recognizes himself to be greater than Abram, and he pronounces a blessing on him. Abram also recognizes that Melchizedek is greater than him because he receives the blessing. So this is an acknowledgement on Abram's part that whoever this Melchizedek is, he is greater than me. And thus this priest, Melchizedek, was uh, superior, this priesthood that Melchizedek was over, was superior to any priesthood that would come out of Abram's lineage, that is the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood. And so Jesus, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, I know this is mind-boggling for you if you don't know the book of Hebrews, I'm sorry about it, but Jesus, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is superior to the Levitical priesthood, which was still in the loins of, of Abram at this time. Also, Abram offers a tithe to Melchizedek, and the lesser would always offer a tithe uh, to the greater. So in this offering of the tithe, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews brings out, Abraham is clearly communicating the spiritual greaterness or superiority uh, of Melchizedek over him, and thus it speaks of the spiritual superiority of Jesus as our high priest compared to the Levitical high priest. Priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood descended from from Abram, and uh, and so what is the tithe that he gives? It is an expression. Uh, by Abram toward uh, Melchizedek of uh, just a, an expression of worship and uh, thanksgiving being uh, uh, given to him. It is an acknowledgement. When we give our tithes and our offerings to the Lord, it is an acknowledgement that the lesser is giving something to the greater. It's always an expression of our worship to, to the Lord. And then uh, in verse 21, then the king of Sodom, he, he begins to speak and he said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Just you fought the battle, you won the battle, you deserve all of the material wealth from it. You just give me the people and you can take uh, all of those things. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. I've made a vow to God. I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's, he's saying the same things that Melchizedek did in blessing him. That I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. In other words, I won't take the smallest thing from you and that I will not take anything that is yours lest you should say I made uh, Abram rich. And so here is Abram, and I think one of the things that he's communicating to this king is, don't judge the whole family on the basis of that kid over there. He's selling, he is selling, claims to know the true and the living God, claim, comes from the heritage, all those things, but you know and I know he's selling out uh, uh, at the drop of a hat for all the same things that everyone is selling out for in Sodom. But don't think everyone in this family or every follower of God is cut from that, that same fabric. I don't want anything you have. And, and he establishes a separation 
from Sodom, from the king of Sodom, from anything that Sodom has to offer. It doesn't want a single thing from, from that place. And, and he just establishes a, a complete separation uh, related to it. I don't want uh, any connection with Sodom, my reputation to be connected with Sodom. I have great promises from God about what he's going to do through my life. And I don't want every, anyone to ever look back and say, yeah, but he got his jump start from the king of Sodom who gave him all that stuff. And, and so he could protect the glory of God through what God was going to do through his life. He said, I don't want anything you have to offer. Of course, when the king of Sodom offers you something, this is a tremendous temptation. There's a lot of wealth here and things. But when the king of Sodom offers something, there's always a string attached. And then, and then sometimes they'll come in and offer you this, offer you that, and everything. Know you're, they know you're a child of God. They know that you serve God Most High, all of these kinds of things. And then want to give you something like this and all. So now you're indebted to them. And now you'll be hesitant to speak against the sin of Sodom and the sin of their life. And Abraham keeps things so uncomplicated by saying, I don't want anything to do with you or anything you have for the sake of God getting glory through my life. He said, except only what the young men have eaten uh, in, in, in the battle and then bringing everything back and the portion of the men who went with me, uh, Aner, uh, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. And so when Abram went to battle against these four kings, uh, these friends or alliances that were with him, uh, they were a part of the fighting force in addition to the 318. And Abram doesn't speak for them. And he, he's, it's not right for him to speak for them. He said, I don't want anything but how you deal with them, and that all gets worked out. That's between you and them. And so we'll stop uh, there tonight.